From WHQR Public Media, this is the Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for joining us. On today's show, my colleague Rachel Keith and I are unpacking our recent forum for Republican primary candidates running for the New Hanover County Board of Education. We hosted this event along with WECT and Port City Daily, and reporters along with MC John Evans got a chance to pose questions to all five GOP candidates running for three spots in the general election. Nikki Bascombe, Dr. Kimberly McDuffie Murphy, David Perry, Natasha Tu, and Aubrey Tuell. We'd initially planned to do a companion forum with Democratic candidates, but since there are just three active candidates left, there's not really a need for Democratic primary, so we're holding off on them until ahead of the general election. Now, we'll have video of the GOP candidate forum on our show page, but on today's show, we're hitting the highlights, including questions about the district's $20 million budget shortfall, diversity, equity, and inclusivity, learning loss and low-performing schools, and, not for the first time, calls to fire Superintendent Dr. Charles Faust. Okay, with that, Rachel Keith, thanks for being here. Thank you. Okay, we've got a lot to cover, so let's get into this and start working our way through the candidates as they were kind of introducing themselves uh, to the crowd. So our first candidate we're going to talk about is Nikki Bascom. Yes. Nikki introduced herself as running a child care facility, that she's an early childhood consultant, that she is the volunteer coordinator for her PTA at her um, children's school. And she also touted being a part of the county's family advisory committee. She also mentioned that she's the director of Surfers Healing Autism and that she got active in the school system during the pandemic about the closure. So that really galvanized her to get involved. And she mentioned how important it is to have diversity and inclusion, but then she's questioning the inclusion of equity. I think where we go wrong is equity. Equity is trying to change the outcome. I was born and raised as a low-income family. I ate ketchup sandwiches because that's all we could afford. If equity would have been put in place then and they were trying to change my outcome, I wouldn't be half the person that I am today. I learned how to work hard. I learned the value of money. And I learned to not eat ketchup sandwiches anymore. So Nikki Bascombe here talking about the E in DEI, that's diversity, equity, and inclusivity. And we've certainly seen her take some flack from other conservatives for not going after those other two, but she is really focused in on equity. And from the point of view of the school district, the idea here is that not every student is starting at the same place. So because of a history of socioeconomic discrimination or ACEs or disability or whatever the reason is, some students just need more help to get to the same place the district wants every student to get to. And that is what Bascombe is talking about when she says the district wants to control outcomes. Now, there is a conservative school of thought that feels like this kind of thing, you know, additional help for some students is artificially inflating their success and is depriving them of the experience of going through the crucible of a difficult experience and coming out the other side. That's the moral of the ketchup sandwich story here. I do think it's a reductive view of what's actually happening in the classroom. I think there is a myth out there that they are just blanket pushing everyone through 
and uh, rubber stamping people. And, and we know from the data that there are there are still kids who are failing. Yeah. And I think the collective view is, hey, we go through adversity in our lives and that makes us stronger people. And I don't think many people would disagree with that, that that's a part of life. But with these struggling learners, we saw in the annual accountability report that students are doing better in compared to the state right? But when we look in these subgroups, they are not doing as well. And so what does the district do with that information? So next we have Dr. Kimberly McDuffie Murphy. She has been a new Hanover County resident, she says, for 28 years. But she works in Onslow County Schools. She's an assistant principal at Jacksonville High School. There was a question put to her about her history in the Democratic Party, and she talked about why she made the switch to the GOP. So I like the fact with the Republicans, I really like the fact that we are pro-life, we are standing on the Constitution, and we keep God in everything that we do. And the prayer and different prayer in school and all of those things, those are the things that tie into my belief systems. So it's also worth noting that Murphy is the partner, the, the wife of Reverend Dante Murphy, who's the former um, leader of the Pender County NAACP, who many will remember sort of leading the charge during 2018, 2019, when we were learning about the child abuse situation in Hanover County schools. Uh, Reverend Murphy has also become quite more conservative over the years. I think it's part of a broader trend that we've seen where the Democratic Party cannot simply default rely on the black community to come out and vote for them. So I I think Murphy's kind of indicative of that. Next, we have David Perry. He says he works in IT and he made news because he sued the district over the mask mandate. And he's also run for office before as a libertarian and as a Republican. This is his first run, though, for the school board. And this was a part of his opening statement. Our kids are functionally illiterate in many essential areas. And what is our school district doing about it? Not a whole lot. In fact, they are lowering our academic standards in order to cover up their inability to provide a true education for our kids. So we took a look at the data, and I think it's fair to say that Perry is pointing to what many parents see as a systemic issue where kids are failing all across the district. The data doesn't really back that up. Now, we do know from a ton of reporting that you've done, Rachel, that there are definitely schools that are performing at a level that is way below the average, both at the state and here in New Hanover County. So that's that's obviously an issue. Perry is referring to, you know, lowering our academic standards in order to cover up student failure, probably a reference to the ill-fated policy of raising the floor of grades up from a zero to a 50, basically meaning if you hand in uh, nothing, for your homework assignment on Monday morning, instead of getting a zero, which if you know how math works, that tanks your average, you get a 50, which has a much less damaging impact on your overall average. That policy was put in place for better or worse to kind of deal with the obvious learning loss that was happening during the pandemic. Um, so now that policy has been done away with. Um, and it's worth noting that you know a lot of the academic standards that we are using in our schools come from the state. So if you have issue with those, that's fine. And school board members could certainly lobby for them to be changed, but it's not something they can directly get their hands on. And another important note is that last year the district had 12 low-performing schools, and now they only have seven. So the schools are improving, and again, if we look at rankings, 
Mason Bro Elementary and Ogden Elementary have some of the highest rankings in the entire state, but then we also have Freeman Elementary that is one of the lowest. So there is that discrepancy and it depends on what school you're talking about and what cohort that you're talking about. Because again, the same accountability report, the subgroups on the whole, like Black, Hispanic, economically disadvantaged students, yes, they score lower on average compared to white students or students of two or more races. All right, next we have Natasha too. She's a former City of Wilmington employee. And right out of the gate, Ben, you asked her about her past appearances in front of the school board. Right. And here we're specifically talking about two occasions where it appeared that Natasha too was removed from a Board of Education meeting by New Hanover County Sheriff's deputies. Rachel, you reported on one of these incidents. We found another one on meeting video from the school board. And WECT also reported on this because Natasha too was a city employee. And for all those reasons, and because the current board is taking a look at their own behavior, at their civility, at their code of ethics, we asked her, what can voters expect from you if you're elected and you end up on the other side of the call of the audience sitting on the dais with other school board members? So we put that question to her. No, I wasn't. I was escorted out. I was not removed. And those police officers, those fire, I wish, I wish the fire, the sheriff's departments, they were very kind. Um, no, I was very passionate. I will never apologize for how passionate I am about my daughter and about our kids. So Natasha, too, obviously pushing back on the question here a little bit, uh, saying that she was escorted out, not thrown out. I'm not sure that's a distinction with a difference. She also was arguing that it was one time, not twice. But again, Rachel, between your reporting and the video meeting records that are online, uh, it does look like twice. But really here, we were trying to get to the issue of board member behavior over the last three or four years. We have seen both Democratic and Republican-run boards uh, run into some pretty chaotic waters, uh, at one point melting down under Vice Chair Nelson Bollier. And all of that to say that it's a valid question that we get from voters about how will board members conduct themselves. So make what you will of Natasha Tu's answer here, but you can't say she's not passionate about the issues, at least as she sees them. And one of the things she brought up in responding to this question was that a policy she would pursue would be more time for speakers at the call of the audience, three minutes maybe instead of two. And that's certainly a request we've heard from both sides of the political spectrum. But realistically, it's going to have to be a balance. New Hanover County School Board meetings are notorious for going late into the evening. But at the same time, I can certainly say two minutes is not a lot of time when you've got something you want to get off your chest. Okay, moving on, next is Aubrey Tuwell. She's a recent high school graduate, graduated in 2020, and we say that because she said that. She repeatedly brought up that issue as a way to say that, you know, she sort of has very recent firsthand experience of what's going on in schools in general, although she was not a student in our district. She highlighted her experience as a volunteer tutor, and, she, you know, she noted, again, this is anecdotal, but she noted that volunteers and tutors have a huge impact on the classroom. I was recently in the public education system, and I can tell you where the indoctrination is lying. I also served as a volunteer tutor and assistant teacher within my high school when I was in school. That experience taught me so much about myself, and there was also a positive, very positive impact on our students' education. Grades increased, attendance increased, and behavioral issues decreased drastically. The question has always been, you know, how to turn the anecdotal evidence that we have of the value of people volunteering in the schools 
into a more systemic effort to actually lift those schools up. But certainly that's something we've heard. Uh, she did also touch on the indoctrination, claiming to have, again, firsthand experience with watching teachers indoctrinate people. We'll get to that a little bit later in the show. But for now, we need to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about, well, the elephant in the room, Superintendent Dr. Charles Faust. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman here with my colleague, Rachel Keith. Rachel, thanks for being with us. Thank you. And once again, we find ourselves asking a panel of candidates for school board about whether or not they would fire Superintendent Dr. Charles Faust. Back in 2022, we asked a panel of Republican and Democratic candidates about this issue, and they all voiced, at the very least, concerns about Faust on topics ranging from how he handled reopening uh, during the COVID pandemic, his hiring of the DEI consulting firm Sophic Solutions, uh, his perceived lack of engagement with principals and teachers, and even just his personal style. Flash forward two years, uh, there were some pretty hot and heavy behind closed doors negotiations uh, by the Republican Party about whether or not they would renew Faust's contract. Uh, they ultimately did, but we all got the sense that he was on thin ice. And then more recently, there was the closure of the Mosley Career Readiness Academy. Now, while there is now some reporting out there that shows board members weren't completely blindsided by this. The, the public and even people who went to that school uh, were definitely caught off guard and caused, again, outcry on both sides of the political spectrum. And we'll have links to all that reporting. And all of that is to say we have heard from more than enough voters to have to include this as a question for our candidates. And four of the five were pretty emphatic that they would fire Faust immediately if they were elected to office. But there was one candidate who kind of bucked that trend a little bit. Nikki Bascom had a different take on Dr. Faust. I do not think that it's an easy question of just fire Faust or not fire Faust, especially when we're in such a huge budget shortfall. If we were to fire Faust, even for just cause, we'd end up in court with him, which means we would end up with court fees. He could sue us. We'd have to pay for that. There are four counties in North Carolina looking for superintendents right now. We're going to join those four other counties looking. Do I think he needs to go? I do feel like there were questionable things that he has done. I do not think this is the time. So that's obviously not a ringing endorsement of Dr. Faust. It, it is similar to the logic that Josie Barnhart, Pat Bradford, and Pete Wildebor used after extending his contract last year. Uh, they took a lot of heat from the New Hanover County Republican Party. They went on the NHC GOP podcast to sort of make their case. And what they said in part was that firing Faust comes with a lot of costs and a lot of unforeseen logistical difficulties in replacing him and any other top administrators that he might take with him. But Nikki Bascombe was really the only one who sort of reiterated that kind of more nuanced point. The rest of the candidates were a bit more emphatic about the desire to just see Faust go. Yes, that's right. And for example, Kimberly McDuffie Murphy, she is saying it would be worth it to break his contract now. And I believe even though it would be a quarter of a million dollar uh, financial loss, I think our children are worth it. And there's no time like the present to hit pause and start again. 
Uh, the longer he stays our superintendent, the worse things are going to get because everyone has lost confidence in him. So what Murphy is talking about is the Board of Education members can unilaterally just end his employment, but they have to basically pay him one year of salary. It's a little bit ambiguous. We're not sure if that includes benefits or not. But even without benefits, it would be about a quarter million dollars. With benefits, Rachel, you did some math. It could be as high as $320,000. And to Nikki Bascom's point, if they wanted to fire him with cause, which is saying, we're not paying out the rest of your contract. We're just firing you because you haven't lived up to the letter of your contract. Faust could sue. And we've seen this in other districts around the state and uh, it's no way to know what the legal bills would be but certainly in the hundred thousand dollar or higher range is certainly plausible that's right so most of the candidates talked about paying this cost but then they never said where it would come from and likely it would have to come from additional funds from the county commissioners and, you know, what's the likelihood of that for them to agree to that? There are so many different variables here. So we're going to move on next to David Perry, who also came to the public call and said, our students are worth it. We need to have Dr. Faust leave now. And he also talked about it's mainly because he is not a conservative person. We have a conservative school board with a, a supposedly we want a strategic plan that, that will bring conservative values to our schools, but we have somebody who is an ultra-left liberal running our school district. It just won't work. Our school system is a contractor for our parents. We should be providing the education that our kids need, not trying to pursue some social warrior agenda. So Perry is not the first person to have this critique of Faust. We've definitely heard it over the years, but I think it's been louder lately, at least in part because of a dust-up Faust had with the board. Uh, Rachel, you reported on this. Uh, They were discussing the, at the time, proposed standards of conduct policy that would limit what teachers can say in the classroom, and the issue of the Constitution came up, and Faust said, and I'm paraphrasing here, that the Constitution was not written for him. And it was a heat-of-the-moment comment, and it was a little ambiguous, but I took his words to mean that as a black person, had he been alive at the time the Constitution was written, he would not have been protected by that document. And for what it's worth, Pat Bradford noted that as a woman, she would not have either. She would have not had the right to vote. But whatever you think about that conversation, it clearly struck a chord with some people on the right Um, Woody White, who's an influential conservative in the area, actually included the exchange, although he didn't name Faust, uh, in an article about indoctrination and other issues in the education system. It it clearly reverberated around the conservative world a little bit. And many of the people I spoke to uh, basically assumed that Faust had, uh, you know, signed his own uh, pink slip with this comment. Yeah, it made um, GOP chair Nevin Carr come out at the next call to the audience to talk about that. All right, let's move on, though, because we've got to talk about this budget hole. We asked each of the candidates what they would do if they were on the board right now facing upwards of a $20 million hole. Yes, and no surprise here that, and I think this would be across partisan lines. You cut central office staff, and then this is where they would divide, is that get rid of the diversity officer and any staff that's associated with that. And so that was the common ground where they all started from. So here is Kimberly McDuffie Murphy on that point. We start at the district office, we start with the superintendent and work our way down, do an investigation to see Are they warranted their jobs? Is what they're doing warranted what they're making? I was a secretary. I never made over $30,000 a year. 
and these secretaries and clerical staff is making far more than the average person. An interesting note here is Aubrey Tuell's response. She was one of the only people to mention the new Hanover Community Endowment. Uh, we've seen this come up in a lot of different conversations with a lot of different local governments, all of whom are facing budget troubles, especially as you know inflation has really put a crink in people's budgets over the last couple of years. So here's what Tuell had to say. But there's a thing called the endowment that we can absolutely be asking for, submitting a grant request for capital needs. I think that that's something that we should be focusing on. We should not be building entire new schools. I'm against that. I think that is very expensive. It's proven to be a financial burden. I think that we should expand the facilities that we already have if possible. Yes, and she also mentioned later, you know, in the midst of cutting positions, could we hire a grant writer to get these through? Because last time the schools did submit five applications and none of them were taken up. But this specifically, she's talking about Cropper GIS, Matthew Cropper. He gave a presentation to the county commission and to the school board and said, your your schools are overcrowded right now and you have to start building additional buildings on the school sites. And then he also talked about building just new schools in general. And so what Aubrey is saying is that the endowment can do some of this. But right now, the endowment, the way it's written in the asset purchase agreement for the transfer of funds from, you know, the hospital, the sale into the endowment says that that the endowment cannot take the place of a government entity, but that they can supplement. But then this is opens up a whole door of ambiguities. Can they actually build schools with this money? Yeah. I mean, there's a ton of questions about whether or not the endowment can fund employees. The uh, Community Justice Center under the leadership of Ben David that's being stood up right now does appear to include employees that are hired with grant money from the endowment. Obviously, the concern there is, is if, if you employ someone with a limited time grant fund, then they're sort of employed under a ticking clock. And that's not comfortable for anybody. Um, so what what Tuell is suggesting is a little bit of a financial shell game that all governments must play when it comes to grants is take the grant money, put it to capital needs, um, and then use money they would have spent on that to shore up employment staffing. Whether or not that would work, because it would take the political will of the endowment and the county commissioners and the school board, who knows? But she was the one person to really sort of tap into that idea. Next, we have Nikki Bascom talking about this hole in funding and where that's the biggest question that any of these candidates should be able to answer. Where is the money going to come from? And Nikki's point was going to the state legislators. And in this clip coming up, you're going to hear me talking with her about the state allotments. That means that the state gives X amount of funding for X amount of students to hire this X amount of staff. And then later, I talked about the county commission and the school board have talked about a school bond and that if they were going to get that on the November ballot, that would have to be decided at least by May. But between you and I, Ben, we've been hearing on background that that is not a popular idea amongst the commissioners. So, but I still nonetheless put it to Nikki Bascom about that. Also, we need to go to the state and start look, talking to our legislators. The allotment per child has not changed in over three years? No, it's been longer Ten. than that. Ten years. Yes. So we really need to push our um, state legislators 
to, to change that allotment. Our county has exploded, and that allotment needs to follow it as well. So you wouldn't want to see the, the bond on? The bond would be a last resort. And again, that bond, that would be the millions and millions of dollars that they would need to upfit schools or build new schools. And so it looks like, again, this is not top of mind for Nikki. And also, you can hear me interjecting because Dr. Christopher Barnes, he is the one of the assistant superintendents. He hit that point over and over again that the allotments that the state gives have not changed in 10 years. And that's the issue, too, because the school system provides those additional positions through local funds. And so that is really hurting their budget is because they're not getting enough state funds. And so they have to employ these extra people through local funds or potentially patching the hole with federal funds. Yeah. And and we could note, again, this is a complicated budget because a bond traditionally would not ever pay for salaries for individual staff members. It's what you take out to build a new school. And so the county has to do that. The county takes out a bond uh, most of the time. And then that means the county has to figure out how much debt it can take on. In some cases, it might have to increase taxes, which is never popular, to help pay off that debt service. So this debate, again, involves more than just the school board. And so it's not just the political whims of what's going on in education. It's also what's going on at the county. And so it, it gets pretty complicated. And I think one of the issues we've seen is that the county is very happy with and proud of the amount of money they're providing in per pupil support. And that's one of the reasons I, I think that they would be hesitant, both conservative and liberal members of the county commission would be hesitant to increase that amount. And Chris Crudre, who is the county manager at this meeting, it was a couple weeks ago between the school board and the county commission, he talked about that the county already has some debts out there with the government center, with Project Grace. And so if they were to do this, they'd have to factor that in with these other debts that they're paying for. So he said that he needed to do more research on that. And then we're going to move to Natasha, too. There was a question from the audience that said, basically, do you agree with the GOP-controlled legislature? Do you agree with how education is being funded? And this is what she said. Um, I'm a little leery of having too much influence from our state and federal government into our local schools. I think it should remain local. I think keeping it local allows us the most control over what we expose our children to. And we know our children best and we know what our community needs best. So I have to say in full candor, that's not really an answer to the question that the audience wanted to know about. Certainly we understand Republican candidates might be hesitant to go and kick the hornet's nest of the General Assembly. But the majority of funding comes from the state and federal government. It's not really something you can get around. Again, because the local funding comes from the county, if you were to go to the county and ask them for an additional, you know, $150, $200 million, I, I think you would find them quite unreceptive. So I don't know what to make of it other than to say I think she's speaking to a different issue. She did later say that she wanted special needs programs to be a priority with funding. So that's a policy point she might be able to drive. We also asked about Leandro, which is incredibly complicated. Um, it is basically a lawsuit that's been running for decades that accuses the state of North Carolina of failing to live up to its own uh, state constitutional obligation to provide a adequate education for students. If a whole series of rulings would have to go through, there's actually hearings this week. But 
if everything were to go the way education advocates would like it to, it would mean billions of dollars over the next couple of years in additional education funding. And although when we asked Natasha too about it, she said that she didn't really know too much about it and wasn't able to give us an answer, which is fair. Better not to guess. Right. And to go back to this budget breakdown, I mean, the state last year provided 57 percent of the school's budget and then the federal on top of that is 9%. And then if you look at the local contribution, it's 30%. So that is a big chunk. And again, with the curriculum, teachers do have autonomy in the classroom, the way that they teach the state standards, but the curriculum is written by NCDPI, which is a state agency. So they have to follow that. All right, moving on, we wanted to get into the issue of student behavior and safety in schools with candidates. Again, this is an issue we hear across the political spectrum, and so we wanted to know what their take on it would be. Uh, First up, uh, Kimberly McDuffie Murphy brought in a perspective we haven't heard as often. We've heard lots of debates about what the appropriate punishments would be for student misbehavior. but Murphy had a slightly different take. And yes, the the basis for a lot of these questions was the district is facing millions of dollars in federal sanctions because of their disproportionality of suspending black students. And a lot of these black students have IEPs, individualized education plans. They Some of them have disabilities. So they didn't get that money that would go to special needs kids because of this issue. So we put that to the candidates. Whenever you are giving students punitive punishments, it tears up their self-esteem. It makes them not want to come to school. And they doubt themselves. And they feel like they're always doing something wrong. You show them how to do things. You model the behavior. You model what you expect out of children. You don't just punish them and make them feel even worse about what they've already done. Uh, I got into a little trouble when I worked at the middle school because they said I was a little bit too lenient with some of the students. It wasn't that I was lenient, I was trying to teach them how not to do that again. Think about what you've done, reflect on what you've done, how could we have changed that? What can we do differently if you are encountered with that same situation again? And I know that some conservatives will be frustrated with this, but that does sound an awful lot like social emotional learning or SEL, which has been uh, vilified by some previous candidates, uh, possibly most vocally uh, current board member Pat Bradford. And uh, it's worth noting that uh, McDuffie Murphy here is talking about the kinds of uh, lower level infractions in class. She's not talking about a violent assault or bringing in a weapon or drugs. Um, But she is talking about the kinds of things that would get a student possibly secluded or kicked out of class because it threatens to escalate and disrupt the whole classroom. And then we talked to Nikki Bascom about this as well. And she was talking about, again, these, I think, lower level disrespectful or outbursts in the classroom. She talked about the three strikes You're out, you're going to the principal, and then here are the next steps. And now we're going to talk to your parents. Let's have a parent-teacher conference. I do not believe that we need a punitive thing. We're not going to be suspending children immediately because they threw a pencil across the room. It's something that's going to be more disruptive. Our teachers need the time to teach. So again, like Kimberly, Nikki is talking about positive notes home. Lunch with the teacher is is a positive um, reinforcement, stickers, these point sheets. Kimberly talked about that. Some more positive reinforcement instead of the punishment to change behavior. 
And then Zach Solon of WECT asked David Perry about safety in general and how he would help support the school system in that regard. I do think that we need a more school resource officers in our buildings and actually not just sitting on a desk or uh, working the traffic uh, stop, but actually getting in there and breaking up some of the gangs that are hanging out in our bathrooms. Kids are afraid to go go into the bathroom for fear of, you know, drug deals or whatever else goes on in there. So we definitely need to do something. As, as, and as far as gun safety, yeah, I would, uh, that would be a state issue, but I would, if, if I was talking to uh, our General Assembly members, I would ask for uh, that some of our teachers and staff could have uh, be licensed to carry in, if they got the proper training for carrying in that environment. Now we know that there are a lot of teachers who have expressed concerns about that very subject. Do you think that might result in an issue recruiting and retaining staff? I would never make it a requirement. If you don't want to carry one, don't. Uh, but having a few available to those teachers uh, who, who, uh, who want to help in that regard uh, seems like it would be a good thing. So I want to unpack this a little bit for listeners. First, we are used to hearing politicians catastrophize and give doom and gloom versions of violence, especially in schools. It's a motivating political tool. In this case, though, we have heard similar concerns about violence in schools, specifically these stories about violences in bathrooms. I've heard some horror stories from Laney and from both sides of the political spectrum, from very liberal progressive uh, education advocates and from the most conservative members of the Republican Party. And I'm hearing it from teachers. I'm hearing it from counselors. So I don't think David Perry is misrepresenting the level of fear and violence that is going on in the schools. And the state report is out and these incidences are up across the state. So that's the that's the first part of it. I think this is a very legitimate issue that anyone who gets on the school board next election is going to have to tackle. Now, the second part of this is arming teachers. And I want to think through this a little bit because we do hear the suggestion around the country, but most often it is in the context of arming teachers as a worst case scenario, last line of defense in a, a school shooter situation where there's a threat coming from outside the school that a teacher could potentially protect students against. In this case, we're talking about ongoing violence, uh, gang activity, drug dealing, and other things that are happening in the schools. So arming teachers is going to put them in a situation where on a fairly regular basis, they're faced with confronting illegal or violent behavior with a gun on them. And once there's a gun involved, like that situation becomes very high stress and the potential for it to go wrong is just much, much higher especially when we are not talking about trained law enforcement officers. Now, to be fair, Perry said he would not require this. It would just be an option. And certainly there'd be some teachers who would embrace that and take advantage of it. But to Zach Solon's point, this is another thing that we would at least be asking teachers to consider. And these are teachers who already feel completely overwhelmed, um, underpaid, disrespected, and schools all across the country including here in New Hanover County, are having trouble recruiting and retaining those teachers because of that. And so you'd have to consider the impact of an option like this. That said, Perry is right. This is something you could go to the General Assembly and ask for. There's existing legislation that lets off-duty or retired law enforcement carry a firearm on school campuses. They have to meet a lot of criteria, and there's annual training. 
but there is some legislative blueprint for this. But I just feel like this idea in particular needs a lot more conversation before it's ready to be implemented. All right. Well, with that, we've got to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the culture wars. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman here with my colleague, Rachel Keith. Rachel, thanks for being here. Thank you. All right. As we round out today's show, we have to talk about the culture wars. When we covered the election in 2022, this was a huge part of the Republican slate candidates' approach to getting elected. They were talking about getting, quote unquote, pornography out of schools. They were talking about getting rid of uh, DEI out of the schools. And these were things that resonated deeply with a lot of voters, as we saw with voter turnout and the fact that four Republican candidates swept the election. So obviously this resonated with people. The complaint we've heard from some conservatives and unaffiliated is that the culture wars are all well and good. And some people agree with these candidates on those issues, but they don't get at some of the underlying issues like student performance, like absenteeism, like uh, violence in the schools, as we just talked about in the previous segment. But nevertheless, the culture wars loom large over this election. So we had to get into it. Uh, So first up, Rachel, you had this exchange with Aubrey Tuell. Yes. And this actually came from an audience question. And the audience asked, how would you go through libraries and look at books? And how would you remove books if necessary? And this is how she responded. I actually got my hands on a few different books. And I was appalled by what was in these books. It was not anything appropriate. Frankly, it's not anything I wanted to read. Um, As an adult, I didn't really care to read that. I thought it was quite disgusting, actually. So there are legal remedies that we can take to get these books out of our classroom, of our school libraries, frankly. Um, I think it's also important that we recognize that there's two different avenues to go down. So there's one of removing books from a curriculum. I am a strong advocate that I believe that our curriculum should be fairly weighted. I am also very against any type of pornographic material in our public libraries. Is there specific books that you take issue with that you would go after? There are several. Um, I don't have the titles off the top of my head. Uh, Please excuse me for that. I can't imagine remembering them. Um, But there are various books that I have seen and I have read that should absolutely not be in our public libraries. And we've got a lot of coverage here at WHQR on this issue, so I won't rehash it. I will say that immediately after this, Natasha, too, uh, jumped in and said that she had the list. um, And I have no doubt that she does because she has been a vocal critic of this issue for some time. I do think it's important to differentiate between candidates who are using terms like pornography in a figurative, moralistic sense, and those candidates who are talking about specific violations of the law. For example, in the run-up to the 2022 election, uh, school board candidate Melissa Mason and people in her campaign uh, brought specific books to the sheriff's office. Sheriff Ed McMahon put some top brass on the case. They investigated, pulled out passages they thought actually violated state obscenity law, brought it to District Attorney Ben David, who said, even though he found some of it personally objectionable, that that material didn't violate the law. And there was plenty of frustration with Ben David's decision, but that was his interpretation of the law. 
Now, Ben David is stepping down this September, so the new district attorney, whoever that ends up being, could take a different interpretation of the law. So it doesn't mean that legal avenue is completely foreclosed, but it does seem like literally pursuing criminal charges of pornography or obscenity is probably not going to fly for the time being. And I think uh, Aubrey Tuell is acknowledging that. All right, so moving on, we asked Natasha to a related question about you know how she felt about potential indoctrination uh, in the classroom. Here's what she had to say. I think teaching our children that to judge someone by the color of their skin by the con- rather than the content of character is no way to teach a child how, how to think. Um, also teaching everyone that um, all whites are inherently racist and all non-whites are um, inherently non-victimhoods, that's not how that works. So us in the media, we ask for concrete evidence of this happening, and we have not seen it to date. People might discuss racism in the classroom and talk about America's history, about Wilmington's history. But Dr. Faust also has said before publicly that he has not seen any of his teachers teach hate or teach them to hate themselves. He said that's just not how our educators operate. So this is how Natasha feels, but we have not seen a lot of clear-cut evidence that this is being taught uh, in the school system. Yeah, and I can say, look, I have certainly seen counter-racist rhetoric. You know, I've gone to slam poetry festivals where they've said, you know, damn whitey. And you can find, you know, even critical thinkers who have written works that are pretty explicitly counter-racist and say that white people are inherently bad or inherently guilty. But cherry-picking those quotes from around the, you know, world of ideas and saying they're happening in the classroom are, are two different things, I think. Natasha, too, sort of continued on this route, and she was trying to explain why it would be so damaging to teach this stuff to kids. Please don't ever let our children think just because of the way they look or who they love or what they do will always limit what they do. America, you can achieve anything, and I want our education system to represent them, and I want to give them the support that they need. I want to bring an America First education back to our students where they are they know our constitution they know how to fight for our constitution and they know that all the work that they achieve is on merit based so we heard the phrase merit based or meritocracy over and over again from these candidates but Natasha too really centers it in her campaign i think it's fair to say that her her through line argument here is that we are at a place in the United States where people can succeed with hard work and we don't need additional help for people. We don't need to bring up the nasty racial history of the United States. We don't need to bring up what she views as being past inequities. And that at this point, if you go to school and work hard, you will succeed. I know people who will disagree with that. I know people who will agree with that. Yes. And in the course curriculum in high school, they teach civics. They teach the Constitution. It's also in the AP language curriculum that you teach sections of this as well. And usually 11th grade is American literature. And so you also deal with this. So and I think what she's pointing to is that I've heard her talk at the public call several times that she wants everyone to be American loving patriots and to go with a specific point of view and not really question that. And so that is basically the basis of her whole platform is that she's really concerned about this way of thinking being taught across the board. So I think that gets to a broader concern in the conservative world that teaching about the bad things that has happened in American history bleeds over or crosses the line into direct criticism of the United States 
in idyllic terms. And it bothers people to hear that, you know, people say things like the United States is not great. And again, that is that is a platform is certainly going to resonate with some people. How that actually translates into policy is is a different issue. Speaking of policy, we put the question to David Perry uh, about Section Z, which we've had plenty of coverage of. But if you haven't been following along, this is one section of a new professional standards of conduct policy that explicitly enumerates, I believe it is 13, ideas that you cannot teach in the classrooms in New Hanover County schools. And they are, you know, things that most people would agree with, I think, by and large, you know, like uh, no one should be discriminated based on the color of their skin. But some people have felt like that's a trap to catch people who are teaching about, say, white privilege, right? That that could be under this policy viewed as an infraction Or there's another of these 13 policy points in there, or forbidden ideas in there, rather, that you can't teach that everyone doesn't have rights enumerated by their creator or or granted to them by their creator, which gets back to what we talked about with Faust, saying the Constitution wasn't written for me. It's difficult to imagine a situation where you could teach the early history of the United States looking at people who did not have their full rights, like women, or any rights, like blacks, and square that with this statement in Policy Z. And David Perry had been critical of Section Z previously, so we gave him the opportunity to sort of elaborate on that and tell voters what he felt about it. I was against the adoption with the current language because all those things, to me, in Section Z are, are things that should not be taught as truth or fact. But I think there is some uh, ambiguous language in Part Z that might say, hey, we're teaching, you're in a history class and you're trying to teach, you know, what did the Nazis believe as far as uh, racism, you know, in, in pre, pre-World War II Germany. Is that considered to be a violation of Z? Those are my concerns. I want to be able for our kids to have uh, a critical evaluation of uh, these theories, along with other theories, so that they can, they, they can become critical thinkers. So you have here David Perry having a slightly different take. And what you were talking about, Ben, is that there's a lot of ambiguity. And even before this policy was passed, there was not a clear delineation between can you discuss ideas about this or I mean, it's clearly written in the policy. You can't profess to believe this in the classroom. But can you talk about it? Can you can you mention these ideas that certain Americans throughout time have had or brought up? So I think that's what he's talking about. I mean, just talking about why Nazi Germany came to power. Could you discuss that and how they were able to annihilate at least six million Jews in that country. Could you talk about the roots of that hate growing is what he's saying. The example I had discussed at one point with some of these candidates was whether or not you could discuss the history of, say, socialism as a political movement in the United States. And if you're enumerating their values and discussing what they believed in and, you know, does that cross over into you know violating this policy? So that's the question we had for him. So before we leave, we want to hear once more from Aubrey Tuwell. Uh, we were asking her about some of these issues of indoctrination and potential bias in, in the classroom. And she, her take on this was that this is really an opportunity where she would like to see the administration uh, spend more time actually 
visiting schools and looking to see if this stuff is happening? I think having policies in place to make sure there is no bias being taught in the classroom like Section Z are extremely important to make sure the board, the parents, and the community know what is being taught in our classrooms. I also think there could be more transparency between parents and teachers as well so that parents do know what their children are being taught. Um, I think that there's something really important um, that needs to be talked about more, but I don't necessarily think that it's something that a policy can fix. If anyone has ever been in a public school or any classroom specifically, or been a teacher, you know you're gonna act a little bit different when central office or principal comes in. So again, you have Aubrey saying that she supports this policy and she is saying too that there should be more transparency between parents and teachers, but we know that the Parents' Bill of Rights now, there's a whole online section where parents can access what they're learning in the curriculum. Even before that, teachers would share their online classroom where all the materials are hosted. Teachers are constantly being told to show the parents and show the community what's being taught in the classroom. And she's talking about, I think, the latter part of this is that even if people are coming in to observe that teachers would change how they are discussing certain things. Yeah, and there's a lot more we could say about this issue. But for now, Rachel Keith, thanks for being here. Thank you. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of The Newsroom. Thanks to my colleague, Rachel Keith, and the candidates, Nikki Bascombe, Dr. Kimberly McDuffie-Murphy, David Perry, Natasha Tu, and Aubrey Tuell for taking the time to attend our forum that we put on with WECT and Port City Daily. And you can find the full video version of that on the show page. Thanks also to the WHQR technical team, Ken Campbell and Mark Breedy. Music for today's show was provided by If These Trees Could Talk and Blue Dot Sessions. If you missed any part of the program, you can find it at whqr.org or find it as a podcast. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schockman, reminding you that early voting is open through Saturday, March 2nd, and primary election day is Tuesday, March 5th. You can find much more information about the election and how to vote in it at whqr.org. But for now, thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom.